you have been with us. Over this last year, you have had the opportunity to have studied with us verse by verse through uh, 1 Timothy and James before that and Jude and Philippians. And I have been excited to have this opportunity to begin just one of my favorite letters in the New Testament, 1 John. But I want us to just take a moment and remember uh, that 1 Timothy is somewhat of a setting for 1 John, and the epistle was written to Timothy, an apostolic delegate to the church at Ephesus, and it was giving him instructions for church. And like most New Testament epistles, 1 Timothy contains a situation, a complication, a resolution, and a celebration. And many times as we think about um, the narratives of the New Testament and even the letters of the New Testament, we want to look for those things. And we learned that the situation that Timothy was dealing with was that they and he specifically needed to prepare the church at Ephesus for a post-apostolic Christianity, and he did so by giving them instructions for corporate worship and also instructions for biblical leadership. The complication was that there were false teachers infiltrating the church and causing doctrinal confusion. Shipwrecking the faith is the way Paul wrote it. Two of them, by the name of Hymenaeus and Alexander, are named, and we know and can remember there at the end of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy that Paul had kicked them out of the church using this very vibrant language in our minds, handed them over to, do you remember? Satan. The resolution was to appoint godly men rather than these men who were teaching false doctrine in the church to oversee and teach sound doctrine so that many in Ephesus could receive the celebration that is known as eternal life with Christ. Now, why am I talking about 1 Timothy when I am so excited to be starting 1 John? It's a great great question. The short answer is that the letters have many things in common. First, they are written to the same geographical location, Asia Minor, which included the cities of Ephesus, Colossae, and Laodicea. Second, the situation was the looming reality of being the church in a post-apostolic world. The writing of this letter is approximately 30 years after 1 Timothy, and John is the last living apostle Church history records the death of Timothy in 97 AD and also records that John was ministering at Ephesus at this time as an old man. Third, the complication is very simple uh, and very similar in that there are still false teachers infiltrating the church at Ephesus where John is teaching, and they are certainly shipwrecking some Christians' faith. John says in 1 John 2, 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Fourth, the resolution and uh, to that complication is that genuine spirit-filled Christians must test those false teachers. In 1 John 4.1, John writes, 
Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And fifth and finally, 1 John and 1 Timothy celebrate that those who have right living and right doctrine are those who know eternal life. They are those who know eternal life. 1 John 5, 13 is often considered the main text of the letter, and it says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. One commentator, Gary W. Derrickson, pointed out four different purpose statements found within this epistle, and there are more than four. And that's why I'm careful to say that although many people come to 1 John and turn straight to chapter 5 and say that uh, everything in this letter has been written so that you may know that you have eternal life, that is certainly a main theme, but it is not the only theme, and it would be wrong of us to say so. So Dickerson points out four, and I have seen some others, and as we move our way through the text, I hope you're bringing your Bibles and your pens, and you can mark them down so you have a better and a fuller understanding of what God is saying through John. You might want to underline these four so-that statements, though, that Dickerson points out. The first one is found in verse 3 within our text today. John writes, so that, in verse 3, he and his readers may have fellowship with one another and with God. This is immediately followed by a second purpose statement found in chapter 1, verse 4. We'll talk about it today. That all parties involved, that's the apostles, that is the Father, that is the Son, may experience what? Joy. Think of that. That they may experience joy. Then near the end of the first section of instruction, found in chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, here again, so that his readers may not sin. And finally, in 5.13, near the end of the epistle, he writes, so that his readers may have the assurance of eternal life. So we might say that 1 John has been written so that our fellowship and our joy may be made complete, that we might turn from sin, know Christ, and know that we have eternal life. In short, we might title this whole series, and I have, in 1 John as Knowing Eternal Life. Knowing Eternal Life. It may very well be that as we observe all that is going on, in the region of Asia Minor, in First and Second Timothy, Ephesians and Colossians, and the book of Acts, we can see a precursor to what is going on in First John, just a little bit more clear. In First Timothy, the heretical teaching was described, if you'll remember, very early in the book, in chapter 1, as strange doctrine. It had a form of Judaism, remember, in that it was attempting to use the law Uh, These teachers, Hymenaeus and and, uh, Alexander, specifically attempting to use the law in order to tell people they must act a certain way to attain to their salvation. And in chapter 4, we see that they were telling people to abstain from marriage and certain kinds of food. They were saying, don't appeal or don't appease the flesh at some level. 
This asceticism or denying or punishing the flesh is clearly seen as a problem in Colossians 2, 18, where Paul writes Colossae, not very far from Ephesus or Laodicea, and he says this, let no one keep defrauding you in Colossians 2, 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, right? This punishment of self and the flesh and the worship of angels, spiritual things, taking his stand on visions he has seen, and the idea there is rather than on the word of God, right? In just two verses later, Colossians 2, verse 20 and 21, he's going to say, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles, that is the things of this world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as this? Now pay attention, nail this down, what's going on, what is seminal to this thing that is being taught in this region, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul, although very early in this process of defining what this heresy is, is saying there is some kind of teaching that is going on inside the church that has to do with asceticism, saying no to the elementary principles of the world, saying no to the flesh in order to receive your salvation. Paul, recognizing the elements of this developing heresy, introduced uh, the church in Ephesus, or introduced, uh, being introduced in the church of Ephesus, is trying to get their attention. And 30 years later, John is now, uh, now dealing with the same thing. But Paul, pushing back against it, says this in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, this idea that Things that are created are bad. He says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Then he ended with this warning. We just read this and studied through this just a few weeks ago. In chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been trusted to you and trusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called Knowledge, 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. This warning against what is falsely called knowledge is likely an early reference to what becomes a theological system in the late 2nd century called Gnosticism. The title that it was titled, Gnosticism, is a transliteration of a Greek word, gnosis, when translated into the English, it sounds almost the same. We hear it. It's a K and an N comes together, and it is translated as knowledge. Knowledge. And Paul's early warning here is against what is falsely called knowledge. Gnosticism blended uh, Greek dualism with Eastern mysticism, this idea of a higher knowledge. Greek dualism taught that anything material was evil. Therefore, what do we see in Colossians? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, because anything material was evil. And anything non-material, i.e. spirit, like receiving special or higher Eastern mysticism or knowledge or visions was good because Jesus was clearly understood at that time to be spiritual or deity. They weren't denying that at all. 
The world, even in Ephesus, many miles away from Jerusalem, had accepted that Christ was deity. And the issue was not uh, that he was deity. The issue that they were wrestling with is this idea that how could deity show up in humanity, this physical thing that is evil. And they, so they tried to make an apologetic and say, we've got to save Jesus in their dualism. So rather than turn to the apostolic teaching and adjusting their worldview to what the apostles had taught about Jesus, they let their worldview infiltrate the apostles' teaching. Are you tracking? The worldview was dualism. All flesh is evil. All things you touch are evil. And therefore, if Jesus was flesh, he must be evil. And we know he can't be evil if he's deity, so we have to separate the two. So they were allowing what was going on culturally to infiltrate that which was their understanding of Christ. And don't be foolish, beloved. The same thing happens today, does it not? The same principle is at work all the time today. And it is this question, has God said? Beloved, has God said there are two genders? That's being challenged today. Has God said that marriage is between a man and a woman? Has God really said that? Our culture would say, no. There's as many genders as you want. You be whatever you want. You can marry whatever you want or whoever you want. It doesn't matter. Has God said that pastors should be males? Has God said that fathers should lead their, sa- their families? Beloved, has God said, do not eat from that tree? The idea is that they were attempting to save Jesus, not accepting him for who he was, not accepting the witness of the apostles, and that is what is going on as we begin to enter this letter. I hope that you stick with me, and you might be thinking, are we ever going to get to the text? And We might. <laughs> this is all introduction. So this dualism, physical evil and spiritual good, had infiltrated the church around Ephesus, Colossae, and the towns in that region. In doing so, many were adopting a belief that came to be known as docetism. You might want to write that down in your notes. Docetism. From the word, the Greek word, dakeo, meaning to seem or to have the appearance. Docetism claimed that Jesus only appeared to have a physical body, but in reality, was a spirit, and so did not suffer and die on the cross. He only appeared to have done so. Beloved, the New Testament epistles directly deal with the first two major heresies in the church. The first two major heresies. The first was whether a Gentile or a New Covenant believer had to follow the Mosaic law. The apostles settled that question in the first Church council found in Acts chapter 15 with this unequivocal, what? No, (laughs) right? No, you do not have to follow the Mosaic law. No is the answer to that. But it was a major heresy, and it certainly uh, 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 plays into even probably what we see in 1 Timothy and Colossians and some of the the law following that is being rejected there. Uh, by Paul, and then also accepted culturally as docetism, the things of the flesh or physical things are not good. 
And so they had to settle that. The second heresy is the one that we're getting ready to dive kind of headfirst into that John is dealing with. And that is the early church dealt with this very seminal form in 1 Timothy, this idea that this higher knowledge, this dualism. But John further develops in it uh, this, and the attack was on the two natures of Christ. Those are that Jesus was both. This is logically impossible in our minds, and we understand why they might struggle with it, right? A hundred percent man and a hundred percent God. Recently had the opportunity to, to take uh, some classes in North Carolina. As some of you know, I've been working on a, on a doctorate. I, working on it and finishing it will be a different story. But I've uh, certainly begun to work on that, and, and one of the classes that we uh, have just recently dove into is the Trinity and what you and I assume today and have the great advantage of, of understanding and knowing better to stay away from heretical things, the church, beloved, fought over for nearly 400 years. It was this idea of what is the nature of Christ? What was the nature of Christ? Could he be 100% man? Could he be 100% God? Could he do that all at the same time? Did he divide himself out and, not, and decide to not be God during the time that he was here? Or were the two unions measured or put together? And Dr. David Burgraff, who has spoken here in the past, recently wrote a paper, paper titled, Current Issues in Trinitarian Studies. And uh, much of evangelical Christianity at the seminary level are going back to some of those issues, challenging the idea of whether or not we should say there were three persons, because is not a person somebody that's different than another person? And are we, are we saying that there are three different people in the Trinity? Anyway, there's much discussion going on around Trinitarian studies, even today, 2,000 years later. In Dr. Burgraff's paper, he wrote this, and I quote, that early Trinitarian converse, uh, controversy was clearly a Christological or a nature of Christ controversy, centering mainly on the Son. The debate pendulum swung back and forth over the first four centuries of the early church history. The Docetists, which we just learned about, we're at the very beginning, right, of this, in the late first century, late or mid-90s, First John is being written. The Docetists denied Jesus' humanity. They were over here. The Ebionites came along and they denied his deity. The Arians reduced his deity, while the Apollinarians reduced his humanity. The Nestorians denied the union of the two natures, while the Eutycheans emphasized only one nature. <laughs> now, it's always scary to preach on the Trinity, right? You're going to say something that's wrong, so I'm not going to say much. <laughs> I just want to point out to you, hang in there. I'm giving you this history for a very specific reason. Don't lose me. I know it's a little nerdy and a little geeky, but I've done this on purpose. It's critical that we understand the setting of 1 John. If we get this right, it will make the rest of our time together in this letter make sense. We, through our eyes, we come to 1 John chapter 4, and, and we wonder, well, what's going on there? John is saying anybody 
who says that Jesus didn't come in the flesh is a liar. Why is he saying that? This dualism is being taught, right? Jesus could not have come in the flesh. He must have just seemed like he came in the flesh, right? John is saying, no, that's going to cut it. Jesus had to come in the flesh. He had to be human or we don't have a sacrifice. So hang in there. We're getting there. The first century church in Asia Meyer was under attack by these false teachers who were teaching that Jesus was not an actual human. He only seemed to be human. Beloved, we must understand the absolute danger of changing the nature and the origin of Christ. Doing so was a threat to knowing eternal life then, and it is a threat to knowing eternal life now. I don't know about you, but I always get a little uncomfortable when it comes to confronting people in theological error. Uh, I hope that you don't love that. (laughs) I certainly don't. And certainly people have smiles on and they often uh, are very nice, right? But when they have a wrong view of the two natures of Christ, they are exactly what John is speaking of here in this text. They are not believers. They are not your friends. They are teaching people about a Jesus that does not exist. And we must refuse this idea that, well, everything will be okay. It's not okay. We must know the nature of Christ. Amen? If Christ was not a human, then you and I have no hope of eternity. Why? Because in his human obedience unto a real death on a real cross, he took our sin the sin that we have, the deserved wrath for that sin. He took it upon himself so that you and I could be reconciled to God. Being anything less than human, he would have not satisfied this coming wrath that is coming to human beings. That's why the writer in Hebrews is, 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 is going to say, right, that Jesus is, is, must be the person who takes our sacrifice, who becomes our sacrifice to put an end to our sin if he is anything less than human. There is no hope for you and I. If Christ is not both 100% human and 100% God, you and I are dead in our sins right now and destined for God's wrath and hell. In other words, get the Jesus of the Bible wrong and suffer the eternal consequences of that error. Now, I hope that this is helping us understand what John is getting to write, to write, and I hope it's challenging you to get out of this kind of Western mindset that uh, studying theology doesn't matter, and, and why, you know, it, shouldn't we just be all pantheists, right? And have you ever heard people say that? I'm just a pantheist, right? It's, it's, it's all going to pan out in the end. Like, well, it's nice when you get to some difficult things, you just kind of have to go, ah, I don't know, right? But that doesn't work, The wrong Jesus equals no eternity. The wrong Jesus, too much human or too much God and one or not the other or united or not, it it, it is the teaching of eternal life. I recently watched a magic show. Have you ever watched this? I'm sorry, now now you know I need to repent. And you know that I'm truly not a Baptist. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, (laughs) What have I done? 
Uh, all right. <laughs> I recently watched a magic show, right, hosted by Penn and Teller, and Penn and Teller are sitting up uh, out kind of uh, observing these people who are coming to do this magic and their whole thing, because they have been professional magicians for years and years and years, right, is that they are trying to figure out if they can crack the code of how these magicians who are up here doing these magical things on the stage um, are doing what they're doing. And then if Penn and Teller can win, then they have won the show, right? And if, if those uh, who are doing the magic can deceive them and deceive the audience, then they have won. And so, so it goes. I don't even know when the show is on. I just was hooked by it the other day, so I watched this, and I was in amazement. There was this uh, guy there. He was an Asian guy, and he would, you know, he would take his sleeves, and he would roll them up and roll him up, and the guy would literally, it was, it was so real. <laughs> Somehow he would turn his hands over and turn them back over, and there would be cards in his hands. There's no sleeves. There's, I don't know how he's doing this, right? And so I'm watching this show, and it's amazing to me and, uh, how easy it is to become deceived, right? While they're doing something with this hand, they're over here with this hand doing something else, and they have drawn your attention with this sleight of hand, while they trick you with the other. And, beloved, that is what's going on in the natures of Christ and in 1 John. Magic is the art of deception. And first in John, is the last living apostle, and he was well aware that any change, right, any sleight of hand to the nature of who Christ was, was a person like a magician, they were not dealing in truth. It seemed real, but they were saying it wasn't real. They would appear to be correct using the name of Jesus, but, beloved, any teaching that is less than who Jesus proclaimed himself to be any, uh, is eternally damning. Those teaching the wrong Jesus are not teaching the Jesus of the Scriptures. And regardless of how nice they are and what kind of people they are, the Scripture says that those are false teachers. They are deeply deceived. They are headed to hell, and they are dragging thousands, if not millions, of people with them. And lest we think it has no application to us today, consider those who knock on millions of doors each year in the world, introducing themselves as the real church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day saints, or the real Jehovah's Witnesses who have the actual words of God, both of which are denying the uh, deity of Jesus, saying that he was created, not the creator. John, knowing the hellish danger of changing the nature of Jesus, begins to write the churches in Asia Minor, right, saying that anything other than the Jesus which the apostles he included proclaim is not knowing eternal life. Keep in mind as we have now arrived, we're, we're done with my introduction. Now there's only 45 more minutes of preaching, all right? We've made it to the text. I'm kidding. We may come back and spend a little bit more time because these first four verses are so rich, but we'll see how the, that works out. Keep in mind, though, as we read verses 1 and 2, that the heresy of the day was docetism, the denial of Jesus' humanity. The false teaching magicians were 
teaching Jesus' deity, but conversely, that he was not a human, rather a spirit which seemed or appeared to be like a human. So I have you through this history and the differences of docetism and other heresies for this very reason, that we might hear this through the right lens. John starts this way. What was from the beginning? Notice here, what we have heard physically, what we have seen with our own eyes physically, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You cannot get much more opposite than the idea in the culture that is teaching that Jesus was a spirit and not a human than to open up with these words, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our own eyes concerning the word of life. This first detail that we have to take note of is Jesus' 100% godness, what was from the beginning, or that which, depending on your translation there, that which was from the beginning. And what was from the beginning? The answer is seen at the end of verse 1, the word of life, the word of life. The expression or the word that we have there that is word, many of you will know, is the Greek or the Koine Greek word logos, and it is John's favorite way of expressing the eternality of the person of Christ. Most, if not all of you, have uh, memorized John's gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see how he uses the same language. Both pay attention to the fact that he uses this idea of what was from the beginning, or that which was from the beginning in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos, or the Word, was with God. And the Logos, or the Word, was God. He, that is the Logos, or the Word of God, right, was in the beginning with God. John starts this epistle in 1 John, what was from the beginning. And what was it? It was the word of life. Again, later on in John's gospel in chapter 8, we find that Jesus is engaged with the religious Jews discussing origins. The Jews were claiming uh, their ancient origins some 2,000 years ago, right? Our father, if you remember in John 8, is who? Abraham, right? And they are bantering back and forth, and I, I always suggest, although I often, for some reason, think that I should argue with the Lord, it's never really a good idea. <laughs> so they're trying to a priori, right? They're saying, our Father, uh, you come from the Samaritans. We know that you uh, are an illegitimate child. This, this is pretty serious conversation going on in John chapter 8, right? They're, they're saying that we know that you are the illegitimate child and you come from even Samaria and you have a demon. This is pretty violent language, right? They're not happy with Jesus. And so he tells them, right, your father is Satan <laughs> and my father is God and you claim to have God, but I know you have Satan because you hate me. Anyway, they are arguing about ancient origins. 
in the Jews, for them, their origin was in Abraham, and many of you know that Jesus trumping that age of their origin says in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. If you're familiar with Exodus, you'll know that Jesus right here is quoting his amnes. That's my own word. You guys like that one? You can write it down. Amnes. He is. I am. You'll know too that John is full of I am statements. And certainly John is pointing that out and uh, in the wisdom of those who designed this worship center, on your right in the back, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In the middle, in John, he says, I am the light of the world. And up here in front, I am the resurrection and the life. And over here on your left, I am the good shepherd. And the next one up, I am the vine. But what Jesus is referring to here is this back left piece of stained glass, this burning bush, and, and Moses is confused and he is scared to go back to the Pharaoh and he is, he is going to the most powerful leader in the world and he is saying, you're going to get rid of all your slave labor and let them come with me. And, and Moses is like, who should I tell them is telling me to tell you this? And God says, I am that I am. Jesus arguing about origins and his eternality, he turns to this text and he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And you might say, well, Carl, how do you know that's what he's saying? Well, it's pretty simple. Verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. Therefore, verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. So, beloved, what was from the beginning? The word of eternal life. Jesus was 100% God. He was with God. He was God. He is the logos, the expression, the word, or the eternal expression of God. This brings us to the second nature of Christ. He was 100% man, and that is certainly the issue that is dominating the text. And it is this lens that we must understand 1 John through as he is uh, creating and uh, these tests for the believers to know who they are and whether they have believed the right thing in, in light of the heresy that's going on. These details of Jesus' humanity dominate verses 1, 2, and 3, and they represent and are meant to represent the physical realities of who Jesus was. Friends, in complete opposition to those teaching that Jesus was a spirit, John goes on a spree right, of physical description, leaving no doubt that Jesus was not only eternally God, what was from the beginning, but also physically man, saying what we heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at and touched with our own eyes concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. What is that life? The word, right, which was past tense in the beginning with the Father and was past tense manifested to us. Some have made mention that John starts weird for an epistle. 
and have even decided that it's not really kind of an epistle the way we think of it because there's not this epistolatory opening that describes who he is, and that creates some discussion of, well, is this John or not John, and, and I won't get into all that. I think what he has done is much like what Paul did in Galatians and starting very abruptly, taking authority over the situation, recognizing the heresy and jumping in full force into what it is, where Paul, in all his letters, seems to take authority by introducing himself as an apostle or a sent one directly from the Lord Jesus. John does the same thing here, but he does it a little differently. He takes authority over the false teachers and qualifies himself as one of the apostles who were first-person witnesses. John had directly heard, beloved. He had directly looked at. He had directly touched Jesus with his own hands. Beloved, John is condemning those who are claiming that Jesus had only appeared to be human. He twice brings up the 100% manness or nature of Jesus into view by using the words that Jesus was manifested to us. Manifested to us. You'll remember I've already spoken of his gospel In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then just a few verses later, in verse 14, he writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. John is using his first-person witness of Christ in touching him and walking with him and knowing him. It is giving assurance to these believers, these very early believers uh, in Ephesus and those surrounding regions that, listen, I'm telling you with every part of my being, (laughs) I don't know how else to affirm to you that Christ was real. He was here. We watched him. We heard him. We talked with him. We certainly probably would have had smells just like you and I have smells, right? We touched him. We knew him. Don't believe these false teachers. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory. John continues to beat the drum of Jesus' humanity in verse 3. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. What we, that is the apostles, have seen and heard, that is Jesus himself, the word of life, we proclaim to you also. And here it comes, why? Why are they proclaiming this? Why is this letter being written? So that you too may have fellowship with us. So that you all too could have fellowship with us. If you've not been here over the last few weeks and you maybe are not as familiar as those who were with this word fellowship, koinonia, and I want to remind us and want us to remember because in our current cultural settings that fellowship has kind of turned into just stuff that we do outside of the church, maybe with each other, or maybe the time that we drink some coffee before or some coffee afterwards, but that is not the sense at all of what fellowship is. And the best way and the quickest way for me to say this is that it is more like church membership 
It is this idea of being a fellow together, a partnership with uh, other people who are sharing resources for a common goal, and that common goal is the idea of proclaiming the word of life, Jesus Christ, to the world. We are bringing our finances together so we can pay for heat this morning and lights, and we are bringing our finances together to be encouraged and learn and grow and know, not just so we can walk out of here with some fellowship, right, but that we might walk out of here and affect change in our culture. We have brought our resources together. We have brought our giftings together. Right now, there are people downstairs serving in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the nursery. At 9 o'clock, there are people teaching three different adult uh, Bible school classes. There are just as a lot of different things going on for a relatively new-er church plant. <laughs> there is fellowship. There is fellows coming together to take on the load of this, and this is what John is saying, so that you too may have fellowship with us. You might have participation with us. Does that bring a little different essence, right? We, I am writing these things for the very specific reason that you get engaged with the body, that you participate with us in the gospel of Jesus Christ going out. Not to sit and listen and just be encouraged, although we would pray that you would be, right? But that you would participate in the gospel going to our community. So the apostle says, what, a, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have participation in the eternal word of life with us. And indeed, our participation, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, they are participating. They are inviting us to this participation in this letter, right? The apostles, we saw him, we know him, we, we touched him, we, we, we walked with him, right? Uh, participate with us in the reality of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the word of life. These things, verse 4, we write so that, listen here, our joy may be made complete, and the Apostle Paul writes of his joy being completed is often in the context of the resurrection. And he is extremely excited about this idea that everyone he wins to Christ, right? Everyone that he participates in sharing this seed that is powerful, that changes people's lives, will be resurrected. And, and Paul gives the impression very much so that, that you're going to make his joy complete. Everyone that he had reached, win their resurrection, he's going to present them <laughs> before the Lord and his joy would be complete knowing that they had received eternal life. Partner with that. Participate with that. Get on board with seeing people known to Christ that we might have the excitement that the Apostle Paul had and his joy being complete that in the end he will have presented people in eternity to the Lord. Amen? Beloved, notice that this fellowship speaks of a relationship, a partnership with the apostles, with the Father, and with the Son for the purpose of joy. The purpose of joy. I recently had to, uh, had the opportunity to and did a funeral in an untimely death, right? It's untimely in our eyes. We know in God's providence, he's got a plan, but it's always shocking when it happens 
to someone who is, in our minds, untimely. And as sad as that was for me, he's a very personal friend and close to me, a family member. And it certainly created a tremendous opportunity for remorse, and it's right to remorse, but Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we don't grieve the way the world grieves. Why? Because we know we have a joy. We understand that the, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And although we grieve, we don't grieve like the rest of the world. And why? Because we can have joy knowing that, well, that didn't work out the way I had hoped. But I know that I know that I know that he and I will be reunited one day and our joy in worshiping the Lord will be complete. Have you understood Jesus rightly? Have you recognized that your sin will eternally separate you from God while uh, you experience his punishment? Have you recognized that Jesus, God in the flesh, took your punishment on the cross and rose again, overcoming death? Have you confessed your need for his saving grace? Have you believed? Are you partnering? Are you fellowshipping with the apostles? Are you fellowshipping with the Father? Are you fellowshipping with the Son? Is the Spirit of God in your life? Have you been playing Christianity, sitting on the fringes, wondering what to do? Listen, beloved, I, I beg you, I don't know everybody or certainly whatever the Spirit of God is doing in each person's life, but I do know this. Your joy can be made complete in knowing eternal life. As we get ready to embark and get further into 1 John, let us be aware that any teaching that is less than Jesus' full humanity and full deity would not end in joy, but rather eternal judgment. I pray today that if you're here and you do not know Christ, that you would make our joy complete. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. Maybe you have just wandered. Turn from your sin. Re-engage the fellowship. Bring to bear the gifts God has given you that we might reach this community. Amen. As we continue through this letter, let us keep in mind John has been written so that our fellowship and joy may be made complete, that we might turn from sin, know Christ, and know we have eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day, and we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to just dig into your word and consider the majesty of your Son Confusing to our minds, but nonetheless true as we read it in the Scripture, Lord, you have expressed yourself in your Son, Jesus Christ. We celebrate that, Lord. We praise you for that. I pray, God, that you would draw us near, each one in here, those who do not know you, unto repentance and salvation, and those who do, out of discouragement and into the joy that you have made for us. We'll give you all the praise and glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people, son. Amen.